Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Now in this week, as we get started, let me just remind you of kind of the question we began with. As we start a new year and a new decade, what an incredible moment this is in history for us personally and just kind of the bigger picture is that we're all asking, how do we make the most of this time in front of us? How do we make the most of this new year, this new decade? How do I go further, faster, do better, etc.? And we started by saying last week that one of the best filters we can begin to look at all of life through is what is taught throughout all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation this concept called the harvest principle. Essentially, the harvest principle says we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. And I bet as you think about your life right now, your present circumstance, you could uh, um, kind, of, uh, kind of assume or kind of ascertain from your past decisions and past choices that your present circumstances, that there is a direct correlation between your past and your present Past decisions, past choices have created your present circumstance. And, and that's true for all of us, that we have all reaped what we sow, good or bad, good or bad, in our marriage, in our finances, with our career, with our kids, with our friends. It doesn't matter. All areas of life, the harvest principle is always, always true. And we talked about the fact that last week there are no exceptions, even though many times we'd like for there to be exceptions. There are no exceptions. Therefore... The best predictor of the future is to ask ourselves, what are we sowing now? Like, what seeds are you sowing going into 2020 that is going to be the next harvest that you live off of, good or bad? What are you sowing right now? It's just an incredible, powerful question to ask. So what we're doing over the next several weeks is essentially taking a magnifying glass, asking this question of some of the most important areas of our lives, saying, okay, what are we sowing in this area? What are we sowing in this area? And, and today, I want us to begin by taking, at the look, taking a look at the area of beliefs in our life and asking the question, what beliefs are we sowing? And, and I'm not talking about the beliefs that you would profess with your lips, although that's good and that's wonderful. I'm talking about what do you actually believe, what is reflected in the way that you live in the way you live. And let me, let me give you an illustration, an example of why this is so powerful, why this is so important, how this is so life-changing. There was an experiment that was done back in the 1960s by a third-grade teacher by the name of Jane Elliott, okay, in Riceville, Iowa. Here's Jane Elliott, okay? And she was coming in to teach her class, actually, about racism. This was interesting. So tomorrow is Dr. Martin Luther King Day. Uh, this was the day after his assassination. She comes in, and she's like, I'm going to teach my kids about this, all right? And so this illustration really isn't about racism, but it makes an incredible point. She comes in, and she says, okay, class, I'm going to tell you um, about this recent um, scientific research study that came out, and it proved that blue-eyed children are just naturally gifted uh, in terms of abilities to learn, right? Blue-eyed children are superior learners to brown-eyed children. 
And over the next week, the blue-eyed children, standard academic tests began to rise measurably. It was an amazing study. And the blue-eyed children uh, test scores began to drop significantly. One week later, she comes back in. She goes, oh, I'm so sorry, class. I totally got it wrong. Forgive Mrs. Elliot. It actually is just the opposite. It's the brown-eyed children who are actually gifted learners. And the blue-eyed children are inferior to the brown-eyed children. And all of a sudden, and I'm sure you can guess what happened, the brown-eyed children's scores began to soar. And the blue-eyed children's began to tumble down. And since the 1960s, this study, this, this experiment, has been done multiple times in many different arenas and different ways. And every time, it comes out with the same conclusion. And here's the conclusion. You and I, we all behave according to what we believe. There is a sense of self-fulfilling prophecy going on that we sort of make it true. And here's what's interesting about this, that after almost 30 years, or roughly 30 years of pastoring, here's what I could share with you. After walking with people through some of the worst moments of their life, in some of those worst moments, they would tell you and confess by their own lips, this happened because of my choices. I did this. And they would say that the reason I chose to do this was based on a belief. I believed in the moment. They would say, just to be clear, I don't believe it anymore. Like, I'm living with the harvest now. I've reaped what I've sown, and I do not believe it. I believe the opposite now. But at the time, I believed that I could get away with this. I believed that it was okay to run around and cheat. I believed that it's okay to embrace this addiction. I can handle it. I can keep from anybody knowing. I can keep it from wrecking my life. I really believed that. And the belief was wrong, and it came back to really hurt me. But it was a belief nonetheless. But here's what I want to share with you today. That is a friction, it is a tension that I live with as a pastor all the time. I want to share it with you because I bet you feel it too. I bet you have been confronted by it too. And it goes something like this. That when we begin to talk to people about their beliefs, there is pushback in our culture. There is some tension. And it goes like this. Beliefs are so intensely personal and subjective. Who are you? Who is anybody to tell somebody else that their beliefs are not good, that they're not good seed sown? If they're done with good intentions, if they were done with right motives, that, that, that they meant well, they were sincere, their intentions were good, like who are you to say to anybody that their beliefs aren't good seed sown? Now, let me give you another illustration that I think might help kind of give you an example of this. Let's just say that me, Will Lewis, as an American, I fly to England. I've never done this, by the way. But if I fly to England, land in Heathrow Airport, I rent a car, and I go immediately out on the freeway. And I get in the right lane, just like a good American, and I start going down the road, which many of you know in the UK is the wrong lane, right? But I am sincere. I have good intentions. I'm not being evil. I'm not, I don't have maliciousness in my heart. Like, I'm being sincere. But in that moment, I am sincerely wrong, aren't I? I am going the wrong way. And if I continue to embrace this worldview, this belief system that I currently have in England, I am going to head into a head-on collision. My belief system will have a head-on collision with reality because that is not the real world that I live in. 
And it's a very difficult day. And this is why I want to challenge you today to begin to open your mind, your heart up to say, God, show me where my beliefs may have a glitch, where my beliefs are causing me to maybe sabotage my life, my relationship with God, my relationship with my spouse, others, my career, my relationship with money, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with what success actually is. We all have some of those glitches going on, me included. We have to identify them. And in other words, what I'm saying is a person can have it right in their heart and wrong in their head. Good intentions don't make up for wrong beliefs. You follow me on that? You ever seen this happen? It's everywhere right now. And it's important for you and I to say, stop pointing the finger at everybody else, but to say, look, it's going on right here in this guy and this girl. We're all doing it. And take a closer look to say, God, show me today where my beliefs are going off the rails, where I'm, I'm embracing things that are not drawing me closer to you and what you designed me for, what you created me for. Because here's the thing, guys. Your life will always move in the direction of your strongest beliefs. They're always going to. What you actually are convicted about, what you actually believe, what you actually want, not what you say at church or what you confess to other people, but deep down, what your behaviors, when nobody else is looking, what your behaviors reflect about you, what they reveal about you. Let's get down to the the nitty-gritty today. We're going to talk about, and I I want to ask you if you would just be so open with God right now, even right where you sit, if you could just say a secret prayer, a little quiet prayer between you and God, just say, God, show me where there are hidden beliefs in me that threaten to sabotage your divine destiny for me, because everybody's got them. Everybody's got them. And are you willing to confront them? Are you willing to get honest about them? So I want to give you three questions today that I think could get down to the brass tacks on this and help us to be able to say, okay, here's where one of my issues is, okay? So let's talk about the first one. Here's the first question. Do you believe God is good and he wants to give you good things? Like, I know what you're supposed to say at church. I know what the kids would say if I asked them over in the Brazos kids area. Yeah, right? But... (laughs) The longer you live, you go through really hard things, you get your heart broken, you have people betray you, you have hard... It's hard sometimes to not feel like, was that God trying to get me? What was... What's going on there? Now, think about Christmas time. You know, we have such a fun time at Christmas, Leslie and I. We've got two of our girls that are now moved out of the house. Uh, One's about to graduate from college, the other one just started, and so... When Christmas rolls around, man, it's exciting because all three girls are going to be under the one roof, and that is like heaven to Leslie and I to have all the girls home. We're so excited to have that. And so we stopped all the guesswork several years back, and we've just told the girls, um, put together, I know this doesn't sound very spiritual, but put together a little wish list and give it to us for Christmas. That doesn't mean you're going to get everything on the wish list. I can guarantee you won't go get everything on the wish list, but at least it gives us something to work off of because there's nothing worse. I bet you have somebody in your family like this too, because I do, that gets you gifts whether you want them or not, right? They're going to get you a gift that you do not, you're looking at going, I hope you kept the receipt because I want to take this back. You know, like, everybody likes to get good gifts that they actually want, right? And we like to give, we love that experience of, oh, this is what I wanted. Oh my 
my gosh, this is so cool. Thank you. You know, that's so much fun at Christmas time. And the girls know that, that we love them. We have their best interest and we want to give them good things. This is a highly motivating factor to get them to come home for Christmas. And I am totally okay with that. I am like, Christmas is about celebrating the birth of Jesus, yes, but I love to have them all in the house, and one of the best ways to celebrate Jesus is to show his love to each other with giving good gifts. And, and it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it's a big price tag. It just means blessing one another and just having fun with that, and it's so fun as they get older making their own money, and they're starting to have that fun to bless each other. But my point is, is when the kids get older, it is that knowledge of knowing that we love them, and we want good things for them that influences their approach to us. It makes them want to come to us. And isn't it true when your kids get out of the house, you want them to come see you some, at least, some, right? You don't necessarily want them to move back in with you, but you want them to come see you sometimes. And you want them to want to do that, not feel obligated. And so this is an important factor that Jesus thought about as he was considering how we relate to God the Father. And he knew something about us that we struggle with and stumble over sometimes, and that is that in our approach to God, he knew that it would be very hard to approach an all-powerful, all-knowing God if we didn't believe he was good and he wanted good things for us. As a matter of fact, deep down inside your heart, if you struggle to come to the Bible, you struggle to pray to God, you struggle to make time for Him, you struggle to want to be with Him, you struggle to want to worship Him, I bet deep down somewhere in there, there is a glitch. Do you really believe He's good? Do you really believe He wants good things for you? Jesus says, when you're approaching God, I want to give you a concept, I want to give you a picture to have in your mind. I think it would be very helpful to you. And he shares it in this famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Here's what he said, and let's read the highlighted words at the end together. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake? And of course, his audience would be like, no, oh my gosh, that's like the worst parent ever. Who would do that? Nobody would do that, right? He says, I know, I get it, right? I'm making a point here. He's like, he says, and if you then, though you are evil, you are capable of evil, you're capable of sin. You're capable of a whole lot of bad stuff. Though you are capable of evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give, let's say it together, give good gifts to those who ask him? As if to say, Jesus is saying, where do you think you get that inclination in your heart to want to give good gifts to your kids? You get it from your heavenly Father. It is a part of his stamp on your heart. It's a part of his imago Dei. You've been made in the image of God. You've been made like him. It brings pleasure to you to bless your kids. Where do you think you get that? God loves to do that. And Jesus is showing us that when you go to approach God, don't forget he loves you. And he wants good things for you. And he wants to provide for your needs and sometimes what you actually need is not always what you want. And because he loves you, he's going to give you what you need rather than what you want, just like you do the same for your kids sometimes. They want to eat a Snickers bar every meal, right? You know that's no good for them. So you give them what they need rather than what they want sometimes because you know better. You have been lived, you live long, you have wisdom. There's a little snapshot of that dynamic between us and God. 
And, and Jesus is saying, you can trust him. Now, I get it. For some of you in the room, you're saying, but Will, if you grew up with a daddy like mine, you'd struggle with trusting God too. And I get it. I've talked to so many people. It was an alcoholic father. It was an absentee father. It was an abusive father. You fill in the blank. And it's very hard not to superimpose your earthly daddy's image onto your heavenly father. It's very hard not to look through the filter of how you were treated by your earthly father onto your heavenly father. But I'm telling you, it's worth the process, and it can be painful at times to say, God, show me where I am imposing things on you that do not belong to you. They belong to him, and I, I will forgive him, but God never did this to you. And he loves you, and he wants good things for you, and he is worthy of your trust and your love and your loyalty and your faithfulness because he has shown that to you. And he will walk with you through anything and everything. But do you really believe he's good and he wants good things for you? Are you willing to work through that with the Lord? Here's the second question. Do you believe, that, do you believe the Bible enough to make decisions based on its guidance? Do you believe the Bible enough? And I know we live in a day but there's lots of questions, lots of doubts. And let me just kind of give you some things to think about, okay, as we approach the Bible. Because to believe that the Bible is untrustworthy is to say that we have found some other rational explanation for its miraculous nature. For example, for example there is over 2,000 prophecies in the Bible some that were given hundreds of years, some giving thousands of years before their fulfillment that have been given. And Dr. Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he goes through and, and lays these out and basically says the statistical probability of these 2,000 prophecies being fulfilled without error in the way that they have been fulfilled is the same statistical probability as 1 in 10 to the 20,000th power. That is 10 with 20,000 zeros behind it. It looks something like this. I know you're looking at it going, that's just a white screen. It's actually 0.5 font. These are little zeros. I, I'm looking at it and I can barely tell, okay? They're super, super tiny. Imagine that number right there, okay, for just a moment. It's one in that number. Let's just take for a minute that we're going to roll a set of dice. And there's a preset, num uh, preset set of numbers that we're going to try to hit with our dice, right? And we roll it and we go, oh my gosh, we got the first one. And then we roll it again. Oh, we got the second one. We got the third one. We got the fourth one. We got the fifth one. Perfectly. And we continue to do this over and over and over for hundreds and thousands and millions and billions and trillions and quadrillions of times. How long would it take before you go, okay, these dice are loaded or somebody's orchestrating this. Somebody is directing what's happening to the dice because dice don't do this, right? It wouldn't take 1 to the 20,000th power, right? 10 to the 20,000th power before we start cluing in, okay, this doesn't just happen. And, and, and we, we have to get to a point where we say, okay, for the Bible to have this incredible, miraculous nature is just mathematically inconsistent to say it's not miraculous. It's not, like, 
it, that there was no divine hand that was orchestrating. There was no tampering. There was no sovereign God that somehow was orchestrating these moments and these, these patterns in history. It's just too over-the-top, statistically improbable, like intellectually inconsistent and, and, and academically inconsistent. We, 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 at some point, we have to say, okay, I need to be at least open to the fact that this is a supernatural book. And what's beautiful is that it doesn't stop there. As we look throughout the pages of history, thousands and thousands of years of history and seeing all of the millions upon millions upon millions of people whose lives have been radically changed because they say, their, their admission, their witness, that I have believed the hope and trusted the, the promises in this book, and it radically changed my life, and I experienced something. It's not just adherence to a belief. I experienced a presence of God in my life like I cannot explain. Millions and millions. And there have been kings and tyrants and entire societies that have worked hard to abolish this thing, get rid of it, burn it, destroy it, and it still remains the number one best-selling book of all time. And ironically, it's also the most stolen book in all of the world. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of interesting. But what my point is, you cannot ignore the life change that has happened from those who have believed this book. It's undeniable. It is something we can't just dismiss. And I think one of the greatest pieces of evidence for believing in the Bible is Jesus himself. That Jesus, as he comes on the pages of history, he claims to be God in the flesh. And over and over, he proves it through miracle after miracle. And then he begins to claim that he's going to die and he's going to raise from the dead. And he does this over a half dozen times, over and over again. And he does it, and he explains it, and he tells the disciples. But as we see later in the story of the Gospels, it had all gone right over their head. They did not quite get the concept that he was going to die and resurrect from the dead. Um, and when he did it, they were amazed. They were shocked. They were astounded. You know, nobody was outside the tomb on Easter morning going like, five, four, three, two. Like, no, nobody was expecting it. Nobody. Even the ladies who showed up were there to just redress the body. They were, it was not something they thought of. But Jesus resurrected from the dead, showing and verifying his divinity, that he was God, and that he had come to bring salvation to all the world. And Jesus, this Son of God, proving his divinity... This miraculous resurrection from the dead, a historical fact, one of the greatest sociological shifts in all of history. The number of people, over a quarter of a million by the end of the book of Acts. People who were now following the faith of Jesus Christ during a time where they could have disproved his resurrection easier than any other time in history because they were contemporaries to its event. But they were believing and believing and believing. And here this Jesus, this God-man, he quotes the Bible over and over and over as the authoritative word of God that he believed. He built his life on it. And he says, you should too. So my point today is anybody who shows up claiming to be God, saying they're going to resurrect from the dead and then pulls it off, we should listen to what he says. We should listen to whatever they say, Right? Jesus is the only one. He's a single person in that category of history. 
And he shows us we can trust this. Just as as a Christian, you come and you play faith, place faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that he becomes your savior. In the same way, Jesus shows us that through faith, you can place your faith in the trustworthiness of God's word to build your life on it. Because Jesus does. Even when he was confronted, when he was tempted by Satan, he quoted God's word. When he went throughout his life, he quoted. He was over and over going back to God's truth as a baseline, foundation for how to live. And in the end of the Gospel of John, we're told this. Chapter 20, verse 31. I love this. John reminds us. He says, but these things were, are written that you may, let's say it together, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the anointed one. So much is compressed in that one word, Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing that you may have life in his name. And this word belief is synonymous with faith, with trust. It's us placing the weight of our hope for the future and the present and the past on Jesus. And he's saying, and you can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust God's word, and you can build your life on it. And I know for some of you, that may be a scary proposition, but I challenge you that this be the year that you begin to step out. Even if it's baby steps at first, that's okay. Just start beginning to read it, apply it, put it in practice in your life, and just see if God doesn't begin to work in a, an amazing way. I've seen people so many times that by applying the works and words of Jesus, that, he, that Jesus himself becomes alive to them. And I want to encourage you to do that this year. Where are you in that belief? Here's number three. Do you believe that everything that happens to you can be used by God to benefit you or someone else? Everything. Even the bad stuff, even the evil stuff, even the struggles that you go through. Do you believe that God can use it all? There's an incredible illustration in the Old Testament of a man named Joseph. He was one of the sons of Jacob. He was a favored son. His daddy loved him, but loved him so much that it made his brothers all jealous. So jealous, so insanely jealous, that they sold him into slavery. He was taken by these Midianite slave traders down into Egypt, sold to a man named Potiphar. He was a slave in his house. He did very well, was wrongly accused of a crime that he didn't commit, but spent uh, several years in an Egyptian prison. And through a turn of events, he winds up being second in command, second only to Pharaoh himself and all of Egypt. Pharaoh puts him in command. He says, only with my menu, what I eat every day is the only thing I'm going to be concerned with. Everything else, Joseph. Joseph's the man. He's calling the shots around here. Incredible. That's pretty good, going from prison one day to second in charge the next day. Only God could do that. And, and Joseph begins to, first item on the uh, agenda was to uh, get Egypt ready for a coming famine that God had revealed to Joseph. We got to get ready. So they began to stockpile and get ready for the, uh, this famine. The famine hit the whole world. And the whole world, we're told, began to come to Egypt to get grain because they were all starving to death including his brothers who had sold him into slavery all those years ago. And his brothers thought he was probably long gone, dead by now. They come and they show up to buy grain and they realize, oh my gosh, this is our brother. They almost didn't recognize him. He was dressed like this wealthy, powerful Egyptian. He was not an Israeli anymore. And, and they fell on their faces and begged him to forgive them because they were like this little bug in his hand. He could just crush them right now if he wanted to. 
But he realized in that moment, God has used all this junk that happened in my life for good. Not just for me, but for everybody, even my family. I'm going to forgive these guys, and I'm going to let God's will be done, not my will be done, because it is more important. And he says this. I love this line from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And I'd encourage you to go back and read this incredible story from Genesis 37 to 50, incredible story of Joseph. He says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God can use anything for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This isn't just about me. This is about the whole world. And God's going to save everybody. And he's using me to do it. He even used you guys when you were, had my, best, my worst interest at heart. You were trying to kill me. But God used all of that for my good. Would you be willing to do that, to trust him? To say, God, I'm trusting your wisdom over my ability to understand the situation. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to let you use what's left of my life for your glory. There was a moment after Jesus' resurrection where Thomas, the disciple Thomas, was questioning whether Jesus had even resurrected. He couldn't see how God could use this whole crucifixion. And, and, and like everybody, watched Jesus die on the cross thinking, well, that was a waste. That, that, that's the end of all of our dreams. Nothing, God can't do anything good through all this. And Jesus shows up to the disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And they come to Thomas and say, we saw the Lord, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it. This is where he gets the name, Doubting Thomas. He, he says, I'm not going to believe it until I touch the nail scars in his hand and touch his side where he was pierced. I will not believe it. Jesus wasn't there when he said that. But one week later, Jesus shows up among the disciples once again, and Jesus responds to, the, to um, Thomas as if he had heard every single word, because he did, even though he wasn't there. And here's what he says to Thomas. He says, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and, let's say it together, and believe. And the moment that Thomas took Jesus up on his challenge, come close to me and I'll help dissolve your doubts. The moment he came close, here's what he exclaims. Let's say it out loud. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, that's who you are. I get it. You're my Lord. You're my God. You've conquered the grave. You are divine. You are the salvation of the world. You are the Messiah. You're everything you said you were. And I put all my faith in you. And Jesus goes on to say, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then he talks about us. He talks about future believers. All of us in this room. He says, blessed are those who have not seen, yet have, let's say it together, have believed. Those who haven't seen, but are willing to believe anyway. And Thomas, Thomas in that moment, we have a picture, uh, one artist portrayed him checking like, Jesus, yes, my Lord, my God. And what we were told is that after Thomas, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, he went on to the continent of India and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Indian people. He was one of the, the first missionary to ever go to that continent. You know why? Because we behave according to what we believe. It changes everything when we begin to believe. I want to challenge you today. Would you be willing to say, God, show me where my beliefs have got some glitches, where I need to repent, surrender some stuff, ask you to help 
rearrange my view of you, Scripture, the future, my past, how you might be able to use it. Right now, here's the prayer I'm asking you to pray with me. It's simply saying, Jesus, I believe you are good. Your word is trustworthy to make decisions on. And you will use everything to benefit me or someone else. I declare you my Lord and my God. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.